It's another bisexual brunch with Nikki Hodgson, Lewis Oakley and Ashley Byrne. If nobody was told what you were meant to do, if there weren't any rules, we would be living in a totally different format. We as journalists and activists have always found it very difficult to find people who will openly talk about being bisexual. Just don't think there are enough bi perspectives on bi issues. I feel like we've got to talk about it because we're really comfortable doing that. It can be really intimidating. Bisexuality is not really understood because people have biphobic tendencies. And the second you mention bisexual, just their ears pick up. Oh, well, you're still confused, right? No, I'm not confused. I've always found myself at the mercy of gay and straight advice. You can have a bit of competition to see who's the better bisexual bruncher. This is Bisexual Brunch. So welcome to another edition of Bisexual Brunch, the 13th Bisexual Brunch that we've uh, done. It feels like 13 years, actually, to be honest, don't you think, Nikki? <laughs> That's probably because we've known each other about 13 years, Ash, so Absolutely. I think probably good. <laughs> I probably getting confused about that. You're probably right, you're probably right. But I think everything feels long time in this period that we're in, doesn't it? Everything things that feels like ages. It feels like ages ago that we were able to actually do anything substantial and meet and do things and it's sort of it's it, it's certainly getting me down. It's getting me down, let's put it that way. I'd say it's a weird time warp because I feel like the weeks are just flying by hurtling towards December and I've done no Christmas shopping yet. Um, but at the same time, then you look back, you're like, oh, my God, like, that was only, like, a month ago. How is that possible that it seems so long away? So it's really weird. Anyway, this show this week loosely returns to the issue of sex and our relationship with it, both as bi people and other people's and society's perception of what sex means when it comes to bi people. The issue comes up in both our interviews this week. In the first, we have the pleasure of speaking to leading and long-standing American bisexual campaigner Robin Oakes as part of a special two-part series. Next time, we'll be hearing about how bi groups first emerged in the United States in the 1980s, and we'll find out Robin's view on the state of bisexual rights in the US today and what the new administration, which should take over in late January, really means or could mean for bisexual people. This time, though, we're starting off with Robin's own personal bisexual journey story, including the period in the 1980s when bi people were being blamed for spreading HIV. Then later, we'll be bringing things bang up to date on HIV infection, as well as discussing the issue of hooking up during COVID. So, you see, we're returning to the sex theme this week. And we'll also be getting clarity on that news from Norway about plans there to make bi hate speech and trans hate speech a crime. As well as that, and I want you to to think about this, guys, during my chat with Chris Johansson from Visible in Oslo, I discovered that Norwegians have a new name for bi people, which gets away from the sex bit. I'm not going to reveal it now. You've got to listen to the interview, but have a think about it. I mean, have either of you got any thoughts anywhere about an alternative uh, to the word bisexual? You know, and honestly, one of the things that I do worry about is that if you lose your connection to other generations of bi people because you're using a different word, yes. does it actually shift your identity? And maybe, maybe the point is that we need a shift in identity. But I think, yeah, there's some, there's some trickery around when you kind of change what the word is, I think. I mean, I think people have adjusted to just using bi recently. But I think that's just about shortening everything, shortening the words, tweeting them out, making them smaller. (laughs) (laughs) Are we going to call you Lou, have we? Yeah? No, that's like a toilet. (laughs) Um, I bet you've been called it before, though. 
<laughs> oh yeah, my sister used to call me that. I, I made a stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, have a think anyway. Keep thinking. Keep thinking. It's too long for this generation anyway. It's just L now. Just an initial. They haven't got time. <laughs> I think Lewis has been a bit old and cynical. That's also because he hasn't had a good night's sleep, have you? You've been up with the baby, have you, Lewis? Well, I try because obviously Laura's on um, on paternity, maternity leave. That's right. That's it. Um, yeah. So I work in the weeks, um, so I try and give her Saturday night off. So she sleeps in a different room, and I just have the baby, so she have one night uninterrupted sleep. Right. But then when you're solely responsible for the baby, you just can't sleep. So you're like, oh my god, like, has she is she breathing? Is she okay? <laughs> and every time you try it, you're almost at that point where you're like, I'm falling asleep. You're like, oh, I better quickly check on the baby then quickly. And then you're awake again for another half no, an hour. You don't actually look tired. I was, I was actually thinking no. about how well. It's really bright and sort of, you know, I just thought he looked really good today. Well, he looks like he's been shirking his duties because he just looks <laughs> a bit too okay. That's what I was thinking. Well, I sat down and obviously, for those that don't know, we re when we record this, we can see each other. I sat down and I had a t-shirt covered in baby sick and I was like, come on, you can't like go down like this. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, have a think, guys, about the word bisexual. Do we need an alternative? Which keeps by, but adds something else that says a little bit more in the tin, and I suppose doesn't major as much on sex. But before we have that discussion a bit later on, let's begin our two-part series with Robin Oakes. Uh, here she is telling us her bisexual journey, going right back, um, well, a long way, back to the mid-1970s. <laughs> You're listening to Bisexual Brunch. I grew up in a time that I sometimes call BG, which stands for before Google. And so I think it's important to understand my context to know that I grew up before there was such a thing as the internet. And at the time when I was a teenager, which was the 1970s, there was not a single bisexual character on television. Um, there were a couple of subtly coded characters in films, but there was really very little representation. And so I grew up in a time of, of silence. And so anyway, I started university um, just taking for granted my heterosexuality. It wasn't something I even thought of because heterosexuality was universally assumed. Um, Anyway, I started college, and within weeks, I fell head over heels in love, in lust, in something, with a woman who lived on my floor in the residence hall. And that turned me upside down and inside out and spun me in circles um, because I didn't know what those feelings meant. I wasn't sure what to make of those feelings. Um, and I first asked the question, am I a lesbian? And I thought, okay, so to be, if I'm a lesbian, I know I, I, that means I'm attracted to women and I know I'm attracted to this particular woman, most definitely. So that, that's, that's check. And then I thought, well, maybe, and what would, what would being a lesbian also mean? And I thought, well, being a lesbian would also, I thought need to require that I, was not attracted to men. And I thought, well, I sure thought I was. <laughs> I sure thought I was attracted to men. In fact, you know, several um, as a teenager. And so I did something sort of teenager-like, 
which is that I sat down and I made a list of all of my former crushes on men in reverse chronological order. And I looked at the list, I looked at the first name and I thought, Neil, was I really attracted to Neil or did I just think I was supposed to be attracted to Neil? Like, was that a real attraction or was that performative? And I thought, no, I was definitely attracted to Neil. That was real. And I went back one more and asked the same question. I was like, nope, that one was real too. I got to the third name and I thought, this is ridiculous. This is so silly because of course I'm attracted to these. I was, I was attracted to all of them. And um, so I thought, okay, that means I'm not a lesbian. Okay, so I crossed that, that off. And then I thought, well, what are the other options? And I thought, well, maybe I'm really straight. Maybe I'm ultimately really straight. And the way I thought about that was maybe this attraction toward this particular woman is just not about women, but about this one person who happens to be a woman. Maybe this one attraction is just the exception that proves the rule. Maybe if I ignore this, because it's very inconvenient and turning my brain inside out, maybe if I ignore this, it'll go away. And so I waited a little bit and it did not go away. I continued to be attracted to her. And it wasn't long after that that I wrote in my journal that I was most definitely bisexual. And that was shortly before I turned 18. And I'm now 62. And I still identify as bisexual. Um, so that, that's really how I started. Um, but what happened for me after that is I knew who I was. Like I, I, that was clear. Like that, Once I went through that process and came to that decision, I was clear about that I was bisexual. I was very clear about that. And I was very comfortable inside my own self, um, privately identifying that way. But... What I couldn't figure out was how to be a bisexual person in the world. So I got stuck in the space between knowing and being. You know, knowing was clear. I was clear. But I didn't know how to be bisexual. And I was absolutely terrified um, as to what the implications of that would be. What, were the, what would be the costs of identifying as bisexual. Um, I was 100% convinced that no one in my life would love me anymore if I told them I was bisexual. Um, this was not a rational feeling, but it was a real feeling. And I didn't have any evidence to disprove it. And I suppose at the end of the day, there was nobody really to offload, offload and talk to. Obviously, there was no internet, so you couldn't access information in that way. And I would presume a lot of the magazines and things that did exist at the time uh, would be directed specifically at um, lesbian and gay people. There would be nothing at that time that focused on bisexuality, I, I would presume. No, there was nothing that I knew of. And I'm sure that there actually had been a few books written by that time, but they weren't available to me in my sphere. And again, this is a product of you know, not having the internet and not having you know, representation available to me in popular culture or in the media. Um, so it was, it was very isolating, very scary. Um, on my university campus, there was a brand new lesbian and gay student group, but they meant lesbian and gay. They did not mean bisexual. They did not mean transgender. They did not mean any of the other words, which I guess at the time there really were very few other words. And so it was, so like I knew that I didn't feel I could go there for support. 
because I thought that I would not be welcome there because I was not lesbian, I was bisexual. Um, I knew that, I don't know, I just had this overwhelming terror. I was overwhelmingly terrified. And again, I had heard jokes about bisexual people here and there, um, both coming from gay and lesbian people and also coming from straight people. Um, but I just, just felt that I, I was, I didn't feel strong enough to take that risk and to, um, say that out loud. So I basically stayed silent for five years. How did it feel and what did it do to your, the relationships you were actually forging uh, at that particular time? Because of, um, heteronormativity, because of the idea that heterosexuality is just presumed and taken for granted and assumed to be universal. Because I said nothing, everyone assumed I was straight. You know, I continued going along my merry way. I met, you know, I dated guys. Um, I had a boyfriend my sophomore year of college. I had um, another boyfriend starting my junior year and all the way through a whole year after I graduated. Um, you know, but, but again, we didn't talk about I just didn't talk about it. I didn't say anything. And it was it was just so weird. It was such a weird time. And I think it was very bad for my mental health. You know, silence is toxic. I mean, which is not the same as like if you have meditative silence and you choose to be silent about something and you're all at peace, that's beautiful, right? But But when you feel that there's something about you that is so dangerous that it could cost you everything, which is how, what was happening inside my mind, that's toxic, that's unhealthy. And I was not happy. I was not at peace. I was not happy. I was just restless and struggling and I felt like I was drowning. Um, Anyway, let's fast forward from five years after I first came out. Um, I had already graduated from university and I was working in a group home um, for adults with developmental disabilities. And one evening I was working with a coworker and she sat me down. She said, sit down, I want to talk to you. And I said, okay. And so we sat down at the kitchen table in this, in this residence. And she said, so, um, I'm bisexual. She said, to which I blurted out, so am I, so am I. And that was the first time I ever said it out loud. And it was huge, it was huge and it was such a relief. I felt such a sense of relief and lightness and I felt that I was exhaling deeply and inhaling deeply for the first time in in five years and I don't think I realized how much how how much it was costing me to hold that information in until I released it. Do you think you would have actually eventually said something yourself? Probably. And why did she actually say that to you? I mean, you know, do we know? Did, did, did she actually fancy you? Did I don't think so. You? No, she didn't. Okay. I don't know. I think she just felt the need to be seen. Which I can completely understand because I often feel that need now. But... Wow, it was such a strange, strange, strange moment. I think that one of the challenges of coming out as bisexual, or I guess as anything, is how do you bring it up? 
how do you bring it up in a conversation? You know, speaking of bisexuality, which we weren't, I am. You know, that's how I identify. Like, it's, it's very awkward. And after she came out to me and I came out to her in return, um, I started coming out to other people. And one of them, one of the people I most wanted to come out to was my brother who's next to me in, in age. And again, there were three different occasions where he came to visit and we would be sitting in my kitchen doing our, you know, long into the night, wonderful personal conversations. And I would think, okay, I'm going to do this now. Tonight I'm going to tell him, I'm going to tell him tonight. And the first two visits, like I remember I would think, okay, now, no, okay, now. Um, And I just couldn't figure out how to bring it up in a way that didn't feel completely awkward and uncomfortable. So the third visit, I finally did tell him. And he said, oh, I already knew that. And then he said, weren't you dating that girl in college? (laughs) And I said, no, I just had a crush on her. (laughs) We never, no, I wasn't. And he said, oh, I thought you were. And then he said, the one thing that I don't understand is why you didn't tell me. He said, I feel kind of offended that you didn't tell me sooner. And I think that for him, I think it's hard for people who are heterosexual to understand that fear. That, you know, whether it's rational or not rational, how how deep that fear can be. Um, but that was the first, like, the first family member I came out to. And then I told, I said, by the way, if anybody in the family asks, please tell them because I don't know how to. <laughs> and um, he did end up coming out to a couple of people for me, which was a big, big help. Now, obviously, your brother's one thing, but um, other people, when they get to know, um, well, probably your family as well, to be honest, often have very strange questions to ask people when they reveal that they're bisexual, don't they? What, what was the response you got generally? Well, actually, I just want to come back to... Um, to uh, my brother. So he was great on that level. Like in that conversation, he was wonderful and just, just really made it easier. But what I think he's, he was not, he wasn't completely on board either. Um, I think that he had his own discomfort. And also I think his bigger fear was not so much um, me being bisexual, but what were his friends going to think? What were his friends going to think? Because I remember him saying things like, oh, well, and this was like even years later, like, it's okay, like, I'm, I'm cool with who you are, but please don't say anything in front of my friends. And so I think this is like secondary biphobia or secondary homophobia that, that happens a lot. And I think this happens a lot in families, like, oh, I'm okay with who you are, my dear child, but don't tell your grandmother or don't tell your aunts or don't tell your cousins. And, and... I think that, that that was a real thing in, in, for him. And I had another brother who said, don't say anything in front of my children. Like, don't tell your children that you and your partner are a couple. And at the time he said, because I don't want them to think about sex for as long as like, they can possibly, I can possibly avoid it. And it was awkward. So that was really uncomfortable. I came out in 1976 to myself. I came out to other people in the early 80s, but the story I was telling you about my second brother actually is, is more from around 90. 
And of course, bisexuality in the 1980s suffered as well, didn't it? People who were bisexual suffered from a lot of prejudice because of the issue around HIV. There was this whole thing that people thought that people with bisexual, you know, men um, who were bisexual were spreading um, HIV. And uh, that was a huge, seen as a huge threat. And it must have had a, an impact for uh, both bisexual men and uh, uh, bisexual women at the time. Oh, yeah. Um, in, 19, in the 1980s, Newsweek did a cover story, Bisexuals and AIDS, A Secret Double Life or A Secret Double Love Life. And actually, I was in that story. And what was, what was interesting is that we were interviewed by um, a reporter from Newsweek. They said, can we come and talk to your support group? And we said, sure. So we set up, we invited those people in our group, in the Boston Bisexual Women's Network, who were interested in coming. And so we just had like four of us, I think, in the living room, in my, in my living room, in my home. And this reporter came and she met with us and we talked for... She talked to me privately for over an hour and a half, and she talked to other members of the group as well. And weeks later, an article comes out with this horrible title. And it was very strange for me because, first of all, she had only asked me one question about AIDS the entire, the entire interview. She said, are you concerned about AIDS? And I said, of course I am, as we all should be. I said, however, at this point in my life, I feel fortunate that I'm in an extremely low-risk group because I'm a woman partnered with another woman. Um, I said, but, but everyone should be concerned about AIDS and everyone should be careful. And like that, that was not in the article. And they took everything out of context. So apparently what happens with major newspapers sometimes or major magazines is they have several reporters each collecting information and sound bites. And then another person who isn't the reporter, usually a completely distinct person, comes in and writes something, taking pieces from here and there. So we were we were really blindsided. We were sideswiped. We were just upset about that. And but that kind of representation is is real. And like men were, men were, the idea was that you know these men were these horrible creatures who would go, you know, have sex with evil gay men and then transmit HIV back to their innocent and always heterosexual spouse, you know, female spouses. And I think this, there was actually a similar narrative in the lesbian community, which was that evil bisexual women were having sex with even more evil heterosexual men and bisexual men, and then contracting AIDS and HIV and then bringing that back to innocent lesbians. So... I think that that narrative was very powerful at that time. Um, and, and keep in mind that we didn't know, we didn't understand a lot about AIDS. It's kind of like COVID now, right? We didn't understand. It was this terrifying thing and people didn't understand exactly how it was transmitted and what the risks were. And there was certainly no cure at the time. Like there was no treatment that was effective. So it was considered, you know, a death sentence. So you certainly couldn't be very open about being bisexual or espousing bisexuality at that time. If you were a man, especially, no, because you would you would be considered you know polluted or damaged goods. And I think it was very hard for bisexual men at that time. Leading U.S. bisexual campaigner Robin Oakes there, telling us her personal bisexual journey story and bringing it up to the 1980s when uh, lots of bisexual people were persecuted um, because of the issue 
of HIV and this notion that was going around that uh, bisexual people were basically spreading uh, the disease across America. Now, next time, we'll be hearing more from Robin as she talks to us about how bisexual groups and activism began in the United States quite organically um, from the early 80s onwards. We'll be hearing about that. Plus, she'll be telling us where America is now when it comes to bisexual rights and what she expects from the new administration, possible new administration, of course, uh, which uh, should take over at the end of January. Now, in a moment, Lewis, Nikki and I will be discussing what Robin had to stay there. Uh, but before that, we've got a bit of a break. And uh, keep listening during this break because a friend of Bisexual Brunch, the legendary Barry, features. Do have a listen. You're listening to the Bisexual Brunch podcast. It's been on our tellies for six decades and we're big fans here at Distinct Nostalgia. And we're so passionate about our love for Corrie that we've put together some real treats for our listeners as we delve into the show's history this December. I was supposed to be both at university and uh, he was trying to sort of break out of this little backstreet world to better himself, really. It wasn't usual for people from some street like Coronation Street to go to university. He, he changed the mode. And of course, people were in those times. They were beginning to go to university. We're right back to the very first episode with Ken Barlow's very first girlfriend and Alan Rothwell, who played Ken's brother, David Barlow. Coronation Street went out live to start with. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, of course. Well, that was terrifying. Yes, yeah. You had to do a half an hour of television. Yes, and get it right. And get it right, yeah. 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 Staying in the 60s and Kenneth Cope tells us how wooing Violet Carson, Ina Sharples, landed him a role in the show as Minnie Caldwell's lodger, Sonny Jim. She got me under the viaduct and started shouting at me, pointing a finger, pointing a finger and saying, get out, go away from here. People like you, 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 you don't deserve to be here. Get out and never come back, never come out. Go away, go away, go away. And our heads got closer and closer and closer so the bay, there's a slight pause and I said give us a kiss and it just brought the house down everybody the whole crew just laughed their heads off from our own archives we bring you never before broadcast anecdotes from Jean Alexander and Betty Driver it was Ina Sharples Margot Bryant uh, that played Minnie Caldwell me Julie Goodyear, Jean Alexander that played Hilda Ogden, and that we all used to be together and do scenes just of conversation, which I miss now. We should do more of that. Meanwhile, Amanda Barry and Chris Bisson remember their time on Coronation Street. I went in initially into the shop, Jim's Cafe, as it was then. I was invited in there to sack Pat Phoenix. Oh. <sighs> You know, I was, I was actually leading Lady in the West End doing me bit, but actually going in there to do. Now you talk about nerves. She was the leading lady of Coronation oh, Street, wasn't she? But it wasn't that. It was that. It was unreal. It was surreal. Everybody says it, and it's true. You're completely surreal to go into there and go. You couldn't concentrate. You were going concentrate a man that is not else. It, it is Elsie Turner. It's Elsie Turner. I'm talking to Elsie Turner. I don't know what I'm going to say next. I'm just. This is what you do. It was like being waking, being very 
in the middle of a dream and you're going, concentrate, Amanda, who wants to <laughs> supposedly an actress. Get on with it, yeah. We'll also have interviews with Julie Hesmondalch and Bruce Jones and many more. And we've a very special dose of Distinct Nostalgia's Mind of the Month quiz too, as we put Corrie's superfans to the test on their knowledge of those six decades, with some rather special guests asking some of the questions. Hello, I'm Thelma Barlow. Hello, I'm Stephen Arnold. I'm Philip Lowry. My name's Nick Cochran. Hi, I'm Martin Hancock. Hello, everybody. My name's Madge Hindle. Make sure you join us for all the fun. And don't forget to trawl our archives for loads of other Corrie interviews. Thelma Barlow, Steve Arnold, Nick Cochran, Chris Quinton, Chloe Newsom, Philip Lowry, Sherry Hewson, Madge Hindle, Martin Hancock, Tupeli Dorgu, stars from every decade of the world's longest-running drama serial. Celebrating Corrie at 60, this December, from Distinct Nostalgia. You're listening to Bisexual Brunch. So Amanda Barry there in that trail um, for Distinct Nostalgia, Bisexual Brunch's sister podcast. Amanda, of course, remembering her time uh, in Coronation Street, which of course is celebrating 60 years on our TV screens. Um, that should be fun. Um, if you want to tune into Distinct Nostalgia, just uh, look it up uh, wherever you get your podcasts, or indeed you can just go to distinctnostalgia.com. Now then, before the break, we were of course talking to Robin Oakes, America's leading bisexual campaigner, and she was telling us her personal bisexual journey story. She touched on the issue of HIV in the 1980s and how bisexual people were persecuted um, because uh, people thought that uh, bisexuals were spreading HIV around the country. And that was an awful period uh, for anybody who was bisexual, anybody who was gay as well, of course, but uh, bisexuals seem to be being blamed for the spread at one point. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that, uh, guys, in a moment. But uh, first of all, one of the main features of that interview was this issue of silence, wasn't it? How Robin had to um, keep things bottled up for uh, a long time. And we know that people do that. Um, uh, people are gay, people are bi, people are trans. People do keep things bottled up. But um, I wonder how long any of us could have kept things bottled up around our own bisexuality. I mean, I think the three of us are quite lucky in the sense that um, probably luckier than a lot of bisexuals still today because we've managed to be in relationships where um, our partners are very accepting. Um, and also, you know, we've not um, had to struggle in that way. We've we've, we've been able to come out fairly um, reasonably, sort of easily and quickly in a way um, when, you, when, we, when you think back at it. But I'm just wondering... If that wasn't the case, how long would it take either of you to actually burst out and declare your bisexuality? How long could you keep that silence up? Um, Nikki, how long would it be for you? How, how long do you think you could keep up that, that pent-up frustration? And, you know, really when interesting would question because... Your bisexuality burst out, as it were. when I was younger, I didn't have any bi role model models anyway, which is part of the reason that I came out so late, because I was always a very confident person and as a child I was always like you know full of energy and was never felt never found it difficult to express myself whatever I felt thought I was or wanted or etc and obviously we were growing up in a different era where it's, it was socially acceptable and I must have picked up a message somewhere along the line from something through the media or maybe through magazines that I used to read you know that it was okay to be what I was mm -hmm. so 
I think it really is when you meet other people like you that you can't keep it together anymore. And I think that's really interesting about that story that Robin told. Yes. Because for me, it was really when I went to San Francisco for the first time with people that I knew were LGBT to meet them there and then go to the first Pride. And then it was like, oh, why would I not be talking about this? It wouldn't make sense in that context. But I think thinking about Robin's story and the, you know, the historical context in which she was coming out and just the sense that people didn't want to hear it it's you know it's really it's really plangent actually to hear her story it must have been so incredibly difficult and I can imagine that in a different era probably I would have just carried on not talking about it because it would have just been easier and it would have been easy for Robin which is why I think her story is really brave. But do you think you might have been in a situation like a lot of people are and I've, I've witnessed this many many times with you know men that I know who've been married for many many years and suddenly they get into the 40s and the 50s and they you know they suddenly decide they don't want to be married anymore uh, they find a you know a gay partner and they end up leaving their wives and there's loads of problems loads of issues with the kids and all the rest of it and and suddenly they they've got a new life and often as we know they they tend to be late, either labeled gay or they think they are actually gay but that obviously causes a whole new set of problems and it's like they're they're sort of going back to their teenage years and all those kind of things come out you know it's like a new voyage of discovery and all the rest of it do you think that you might have ended up in you know a heteronormative relationship got married and maybe got into your 50s or something and suddenly burst out as a you know a, a lesbian or whatever I mean do, do you think that might have happened yeah because in a, in a minor way that's kind of what I did anyway because actually when I came out I didn't really think I was bi I thought I was gay yeah. so and I thought that I'd been repressing it that's what I really believed about myself that I'd been in, kind of sitting on my own sexuality. And so I had a kind of period of being lesbian, as far as I saw it, had a, you know, a gay girlfriend. And then that was my identity for a few years. And I think I ended up moving into that identity because again, I didn't go into the bi identity first, if that makes sense. Yeah. So that kind, that actually kind of happened to me, but obviously I was much younger and I wasn't, you know, married and I didn't have a family and all these kinds of things. Yeah. So I can definitely, I mean, I am definitely of the thought that what you repress gets you in the end. Like I absolutely believe that about sex. And I think about that from my perspective of having been a sex worker and working with people that had repressed things time and time and time again. Yeah. And then they get to their thirties and their forties and there's no, they've got no choice or even later, even older people, sixties, seventies, eighties in some cases with the people that I met, they, they were still making up for lost time. Yeah. So, you know, I think that happens. And I think that happens to everyone actually, regardless of their sexual orientation. I think your sexual proclivities will come out at some point, whatever they are. And what about you, Liz? Do you think, how long do you think you could have bottled it up before you, before it all exploded? For about as long as I did, which was, which was just a couple of years, I think. It's really interesting because obviously, Robin, like this, this was, you know, going on decades before and I found it quite hard. So I can only imagine what it was like in a time before, especially when, you know, the, the AIDS epidemic was just the news um, constantly. And, and the only time people were even thinking about gay, bisexual people was through that prism, that context, because outside of that, probably not, not a thought or a mention on national television. This was probably in the time, I mean, I don't know what it was like in America, where you probably only have three channels. Like she said, there was no internet. Um, so I, I think our experiences probably are so different, but I would say in my context, you know, I've always kind of said as advice around coming out is don't, you don't need to rush to come out. You will know when you're ready. I think for me, especially, I needed to have that year or so of kind of like figuring out myself and then being really confident in it. And then being at the point where I was like, right, 
you don't like this about me, tough, because it's me. Like, you can't pick and choose me, you have to have all of me. Um, and part of me is being bisexual. And then that was it, and then I was ready to come out. And obviously you kind of start small. You start with people that are already LGBT, that you start with your straight friends, and then it's like, oh, family members now? And, and then you kind of work, work your way out from the LGBT, I think. So yeah, but, but could I have kept it bottled up for any longer? No. And maybe that is a privilege of the times, is that you kind of like feel that like, no, this is who I am, that's it, you better accept it. Whereas, you know, in, in times past, it was like, yeah, but you might never be able to get a job again. You might not be able to, you know, you might be completely disowned by everyone you've ever met. And that being a very real fear. And the, and, and the fact that the attitude of the time was probably, and that was the right thing to do, you know. Yeah. So yeah. hard for you to disown your son, but it was the right thing to do. Whereas now it'd be like, what? You disowned your son because of it? And obviously that does still happen. We're not past the finish line yet, but I think it's a lot rarer. Yeah, I mean, you're right, it does happen. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit like both of you. I don't think I would have been able to uh, keep quiet for very long, to be honest, even, even if I'd been around in the 70s and 80s. Well, I was around in the 70s, so I was born in the 70s and remember it quite well, but I, t I still think I'd, I'd ha you know, would have had to have said something at some point, even if it made me a pariah in my own family. I'm just that kind of person. But obviously there are a lot of people who aren't like that and a lot of people still to this day are not like that. You know, one of the guys we interviewed a few weeks ago, 45, only recently, you know, come out and started talking about it. In fact, I think we were, the, he spoke to us, for the, you were the first people to, he spoke to, he spoke to the whole world. <laughs> so he certainly, you know, went the full hog there. But, you know, generally there are a lot of people, I think, I think we are, and I keep, I always say this, that we're lucky and I think we are lucky because I think there are a lot more people out there than we think who still find it very difficult to communicate over, over over sex i think in certain circles and let's face it we're in the what would you say the the chattering classes really when you think about it you know there, there aren't as many people who chatter as much as we do are there you know what i mean that's true that's true that's ash true and one thing i should say as well being like biracial is you know i'm more aware of like in different cultures as well yeah. that we live side by side it's not it's not as easy and i do think sometimes we're in a certain bubble where it's like well that's yeah. just an issue anymore and it's like actually it is, um, especially in different cultures, that we need to make the effort to really help in you know, whatever way we can. Yeah. I just going to say, I did a panel this week for a bunch of students at a law firm, and it was all about internalising oppression. And I couldn't help think just how far we've come, that we've got to a point that the first thing the students who are going to be entries to this graduate scheme are talking about learning about, able to express, is internalised oppression. You know, it's kind of like got that far down the line that that's taken absolutely deadly seriously. But I also couldn't help think how rare it was and how privileged and how, you know, it's a, t it's a tiny, tiny part of the whole cosmos of discussion on LGBT or anything. I think we in the media, because we're obviously, you know, this is what we do is part of the media, and we're, all three of us are, are involved in the media. I think there is a, a feeling that everything's been done. LGBT, it's been done. It's been, it's, yeah, but you don't have to talk about it. Everyone's happy, everyone, nobody's bothered anymore. And, and obviously, you know, as we, we always talk about, the, the B gets lost in the mix because people don't really understand why that's such an issue, which is why we need to talk a lot more. Um, returning to the HIV issue, though, because um, that obviously was quite big in that conversation there, because, you know, she'd, she'd come out, she'd got the courage to come out, you know, she'd started to um, reach out and we'll hear in, in next week about the bisexual groups that were set up at that, uh, mainly women, female groups, actually, right at the very beginning. But then bang, HIV comes. And there's this horrible story emerging constantly about uh, the supposed sexual habits of bisexual people. 
and obviously uh, gay people were also implicated in all of that as well, we know, but I think bisexual people more because they were then seen by both the gay community and the straight community as the people who were spreading this uh, awful uh, disease. I mean, just reflect on that for a second. I mean, we, we think about the prejudice we suffer now, the biphobia we, su biphobia we suffer now, but can you imagine what that must have been like back then? It must have been absolutely horrific. There is a really amazing BBC documentary actually about, I think it's called Year Zero, which is about 1984 in San Francisco. I don't know if you've ever seen it. And it takes you back to the point where people with HIV that they still didn't properly understand, when no, no real hospital would treat them. So they had to use volunteer doctors and nurses setting up this kind of clinic to look after people who were dying. And it's just so horrific, this idea that you would cut adrift some aspect of society because you didn't agree with their lifestyle and then you would blame them for this infection that had crept upon them you know it's that that's kind of like the opposite of what you're meant to do if you're a doctor or nurse right so that's why they were having these volunteer staff to come in so i just think i don't know how you would kind of have self-acceptance if you were being blamed all the time for what was going on even if you're a really strong person you wouldn't want to talk about who you were would you yeah i mean it's it's, it's so real and it's so it's a weird one because you you kind of like did that really happen but of course it did and it's weird that we're we're in the position we are now where where we've still got issues and but at the same time you you kind of want to be like but we've come so far like look how how widespread it was and i think I, you know, I'm because I am someone that really gets annoyed at media in general, right? Like, I think that Twitter is a bad idea. I don't think having millions of channels is a great idea because I think everything's so diluted. I think actually when we had four or five channels and you'd have the right person at the right time saying something projected to most of the population, that was great. Whereas now, we sort of are all in our own little bubbles and tribes. But I think in this sense, it's good because if you are LGBT, you can go and you can look at people's Twitter and stuff and you can see these specific sites for things and actually get really informed and really like feel that there is a community even if you are so isolated so being back in a time where the media was like oh my god these people and and then feeling that way about yourself must have been just awful no absolutely but bringing things up to date that there's still you're talking about how the media is was then and is now and we've got a plethora of opportunities to express ourselves through social media and different outlets and obviously bisexual brunch and all the rest of it but despite that, the, the mainstream organisations, the mainstream media, you know, governments, all the rest of it, still doesn't really get the message about bisexuality. And this has been highlighted, Lewis, with a response we got on the story about HIV figures amongst uh, gay and bisexual men, which we uh, mentioned a couple of weeks ago, which was all about the fact that uh, there's been a, a, big, um, a big drop uh, in, in HIV infection amongst gay and bisexual men. But you questioned at the time, you know, what really were the figures? What did they break down in? You know, could they give us figures around bisexual men in particular? Now, we had a response from Public Health England, your favourite organisation. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what they said. Uh, when a person is diagnosed with HIV, information is collected about probable roots of HIV exposure rather than sexuality. It is not possible to break down HIV data further. PHE conducted a nationally representative survey among people living with HIV in 2018, the Positive Voices survey indicated that of men who acquired HIV through sex between men, by the way, this is 2018, we're in 2020 now, 92% identify as gay men, and 7% identify as bisexual men, with less than 1% identifying as heterosexual. 94% of women identified as heterosexual, 2% as bisexual, and the remainder gay, lesbian, or other. 
The HIV Positive Voices Survey, published in January 2020, provides further data and they give us a, a link to that. So we're only talking about a tiny uh, number of bisexual people in that study. What's your reaction to that, Lewis? Oh, I, I'm outraged about it. There's, a, there's an article coming. I mean, just the whole thing that we can only track behavior, not sexuality, then you shouldn't be saying gay and bisexual men. You should be saying um, men that have sex with men. Um, you know, you have to make those distinctions. You can't then say, oh, gay and bisexual men, because you've made that jump into sexuality. And if you're not going to actually unpack the different attitudes and the differences between those sexualities, then you can't use those labels. It's a really odd thing for a health body to be doing. Again, if they're making recommendations based on two-year-old data, that's a problem too. And I just find there's never any follow-through with these, with these kind of things. There's never any real analysis and real, you know, if you've got these figures, then tell us what, what the next steps are. How do we make it better? And I find that that never happens. So Public Health England have got a farewell letter coming from me. <laughs> well, we, you have to better, better get it in quick because they, they don't exist from uh, early next year. So you, you have to be quick, Lewis. <laughs> from the creators of Bisexual Brunch Dale, how the hell did I end up here? Based on a true story What choice do you have? Tell the world that Rock Hudson is gay? You're a good looking kid I don't have anyone else on my books like you How about I start to represent you? A moving 40 minute drama Based on the life and career of Rock Hudson Yes! Good boy You just made the best decision of your life Written by Tim Fountain and starring Michael Xavier and Betty Bourne. Rock! Rock? Strong! Masculine! Rock Fitzgerald? Matt Fitzgerald. Sounds Irish. Nebraska, Washington, Hudson. Hudson. What about Rock Hudson? Get your coat on. I'm going to introduce Rock Hudson to Hollywood! Listen by searching for the Distinct Nostalgia podcast or visit distinctnostalgia.com. we got to do something about your voice, kid. We're going to snap your vocal cords. What? Ah. Uh, louder. Ah. Uh, louder. Uh. Rock. Winner of the BBC's first ever online audio drama award. Look, Dale. I'm dying of this godforsaken disease. And pretty soon thousands, maybe millions, will die the same way. Suicide is sadly something which affects people from all backgrounds. A brand new podcast brought to you by the Zero Suicide Alliance. I'm Professor Alice Roberts and this is Life Matters. In our feature on the latest initiatives from around the world, we find out how three schoolgirls from Brazil have developed a suicide prevention app aimed at Generation Z. If something bad happened to me today, I'll go there and add a drop of water. We're with the team at Hollyoaks to hear how they've been showing how soap can inspire life-saving conversations among men at risk of suicide. This way you get to see Darren's journey behind the scenes. He's really struggling and he doesn't know how to reach out. He doesn't know how to get help. You know, it's always been this taboo subject. And how talking about your troubles over a short back and sides is proving popular in Bolton. You know what, to, what sign to look out for. Just listen to them. Listen to them with empathy. Even some of the best mates don't know half the stuff they tell you. Just let them say what they need to say and then at the end just signpost them to the right people. Just that element of trust between like you and your barber or you and your hairdresser. Join me, Professor Alice Roberts, for the very first edition of Life Matters. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. And visit ZeroSuicideAlliance.com for a free online awareness course that could help you save lives. 
Hello and welcome to The Likely Dads, a new series that looks at parenting from the paternal perspective. I'm always wary of people who plan kids. If your life's that structured, just stay away from me. We're not going to get on. <laughs> a brand new show from the team behind Bisexual Brunch. I'm Tim Vincent and each week I'll be joined by my fellow Likely Dads, Mick Ferry and Russell Kane, as well as a series of special guests to discuss different aspects of fatherhood. When a man has an urge to have a, a child, it's not spoken about much. Women sort of own this area. <laughs> I was hoping it was going to be like the old films I watched where I'd just have a pipe and I'd be in a study. You just go, you can see your father now for 10 minutes. <laughs> Hello, children, what have you been up to today? I'm not interested. All right, off to bed. <laughs> An MIM production for BBC Radio 4. We hope you'll join us and subscribe to The Likely Dads on BBC Sounds. You're listening to Bisexual Brunch. We're talking about HIV. We're in the middle of another epidemic a pandemic now and the whole issue and i'm sure nikki's got something to say about this but i think you've been writing about it haven't you nikki uh, the whole issue of people being able to actually have sex during the covid pandemic is something that actually generally in mainstream media hasn't been talked about it's like everyone's talking about wearing masks and washing hands and social distancing and all the rest of it nobody talks about one of the ultimate things that we all do which is have sex um, and that is a, cl- a thing where you're very close. I've not heard any, you know, uh, things from the Prime Minister, anybody saying you mustn't do this, you mustn't do that, or be careful, or, or whatever. Um, and then suddenly, um, there's a couple of surveys and studies that have come out saying that, uh, this is in America, saying that gay and bi men are having more sex during the pandemic, despite the COVID risks. Uh, apparently, uh, gay and bi men in the United States, according to a study, have had an average of 2.3 more sexual partners at the height of the first wave of the COVID uh, pandemic. That's according to a study by the Center for Sexuality and Health Disparities at the University of Michigan in the United States. There was a similar study or some similar um, uh, information came forward in the UK um, a little earlier in the year saying that sexual health clinics in the UK initially estimated that fewer men were having casual hookups at the start of uh, the pandemic. Now, my big question on this one is, why the focus on, I'm not saying we shouldn't focus on it, because we've just been talking about statistics, now we want to know more about what's happening with bisexual men and all the rest of it, but why the focus on gay and bi people and not on people generally having sex during COVID? You know, I'm sorry, surely there are plenty of people using Tinder and all the other things and trying to meet up you know, I, I um, and it's horrible, really, because trying to meet up with people in this situation, trying to date anybody. I've got a few friends who, you know, who are really struggling at the moment, single friends who, you know, straight guys who are finding it really, really hard. One, <laughs> one had a date and met in a car park with, with, a, with a woman and they had to more or less sort of stand at each side of the car park and talk to each other. And it was like they really liked each other. but They couldn't do anything about it. They didn't feel they could do anything about it. Now, that's an extreme case, but I reckon there's lots of people breaking the rules. Nikki, what do you know about this? Yeah, this is really interesting. I have been doing some research on it during the time that we've been through lockdowns. And what's become apparent to me is the government has obviously got a problem with sex. You know, we've got a classic Tory government in that doesn't want to talk about it. And they also know they'll be routinely mocked at this point in history, definitely in British history, if they come out and say, right, you can do X, Y, and Z, but you really can't have sex with people that you don't live with. They basically did implement a no sex law at the beginning of lockdown. And then that was, that was ridiculed. I did some commentary for the Telegraph actually of all places saying, you know, what the hell are they doing? This is absolute rubbish. Because the Telegraph were actually quite forthright on saying it's actually a 
utter infringement of our liberties to start telling us who we can sleep with or not, even despite the pandemic. And then the press on the left-hand side has been a bit more circumspect because they wanted to encourage people to be safe and to be cautious and to take health into consideration. But nobody has really ever come out, and certainly no ministers were going to come out and say, okay, these are the actual risks of COVID if you have sex with people that you do know and you don't know. So we need to kind of put a little package together of instructions for you. Nobody bothered to do that. So, of course, people have taken their health into their own hands. They've done exactly what they want to do, what they felt comfortable with. I did some workshops about what sex um practices and positions were best if you wanted to have sex but didn't want to catch covid because there are some mechanisms by which you can avoid it basically the ultimate thing to do is 69 position uh, that means that you can still have sex with each other but the risk is really low and you can actually wear a face mask at the same time um, so because they found out that uh, there were tiny particles of covid present in semen and feces um, but they were so minuscule as to be kind of not really the issue. The issue is, um, you know, it's, it's really your breath. It's really your, you know, it's like liquid in your mouth basically that um, allows you to catch the illness or to pass the illness on between people. Well, of course, there are people who like wearing masks during sex, aren't they? So, there, there are plenty. And I, I got a trick out from my old domination days, which was basically, we used to do a thing that we used to put our knickers on people's faces to kind of like use it as a bit of a mask, a bit of a restraint. So I showed that you could do that with a pair of knickers and create, because people know that you can use knickers as face masks. That's a completely legitimate use of them. So I was just kind of showing people that you could do that for a, for a workshop. <laughs> it got lots of laughs, but people were like, oh yeah, like it, it is more attractive putting some knickers on somebody's face than using a kind of like, a mask with a, I don't know, some kind of really turgid flower print and all something. But what worries me about this is that these articles are emerging, and mainly at the moment they're emerging within the LGBT press, to be honest, but it won't be long before if things carry on. I mean, obviously I know we're, we're, everyone's hoping for a vaccine, but who knows what's going to happen. But if things carry on, it won't be long before the mainstream media uh, get onto this and think, ooh, you know, this is being spread by these, um, these awful people having promiscuous sex um but straight people have promiscuous sex as well so why not why am i not reading an article saying about people generally and what they've been doing and where you know where or not whether or not people have been taking risks or not it says here that they found in this uh, study in america that only half the men recognize that you could get coronavirus through having sex so there's an education issue there but 64 percent didn't think they needed to reduce the number of sexual uh, partners um so yeah i mean it just hasn't been talked about that's the point mm. i think there's a bigger issue ash which is to do with loneliness in the lgbt community because i suspect that lots of lgbt people live by themselves and there's an issue there that actually if they were having sex they were actually just having contact with other people and then they were also having sex do you know what i mean like i don't think it's necessarily being driven by people's sexual appetites or a feeling that they haven't had a good time you know, in the past few months. I think there's a deeper story there that hasn't been excavated, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. What do you, what do you think, Lewis? It's what, a really hard one to comment on, and I have a couple of random thoughts on it. So I'll, I'll just spew out my random thoughts. Be random. You guys let me know if I say anything interesting. So I think on the one hand, COVID safety in general has been very politicized. So obviously in this country, you know, there's a growing number of people now that are kind of at the point of like, oh my God, if you're this incompetent, why am I listening to you at all? So there's that. I think in America, from what I'm hearing, is that because it fell in an election year, it got very politicized as well. And as we saw, the voting was quite close there. So you've got different attitudes around this anyway. I think if you then look specifically at LGBT, it's kind of, 
I know this is probably the wrong thing to say, but we're not a group of people that will be deterred. I mean, we were just talking about the AIDS epidemic. There were still gay people meeting other gay people then. Um, and still, you know, taking that risk for love and for, as you were saying, Nikki, like not to not be lonely and to meet other people like you. So I don't know that we should be that surprised that there are some LGBT people that think, you know, because we know that the, the figures for that, I mean, if you call up the NHS now, you're told for the majority of people, COVID is a mild illness and you'll get over it. Don't waste our time unless you can't breathe. Um, you know, that's still their, their message to us as, as a healthcare body. So then there are some people that take this like, look, I'm really low risk. I've got no underlying health conditions. I'm under the age of 60. It's probably not going to get me. I want to live my life. And, and, and that's it. So then you, you can then factor in LGBT people that are more likely to be isolated, more likely to, you know, possibly be stuck at home with homophobic family members and being like, I just need to be around another LGBT person. It is worth the risk. You know, we talk about, you know, people that come out in countries where you really can be killed for it and, and they still do it. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, and I don't know whether I want to give that message of like, no, stay in your homes and suffer. I, I don't know. It's a really confusing one. I, I, I would go as far as to say maybe I don't have an opinion on it, but I understand all the, all the different elements of it. Um, and as for your worry that the mainstream media might turn around and kind of say, look at these dangerous LGBT people and what they've been doing, I would say, let them try. I'll go after it. <laughs> well, it's, it, it is interesting. There was a big piece in Grazi magazine about the rise of the sex party during COVID. And they didn't, they weren't specific about orientation at all in that piece. You know, it was obviously people of all orientations that were going and doing it. So there was, there's been some kind of actually, there's been some coverage that will offset it maybe. I don't think anybody would dare go after gay and bi people at this time, but you never know. Mm. No, you, you never know at all. And of course, you just mentioned the sex party thing, thing there. I, I would presume that this has had a huge effect on, uh, you know, saunas and all these other places where you can go and meet people. Uh, you know, I would think that those businesses have really struggled because, of course, they're officially there and they'll have been told to, you know, close down or whatever during, the, during the, this period, weren't they? So, you know, it must have had a huge, huge impact on, on, on them. I suppose the you know, we've mentioned it before, but I suppose the people who are probably doing quite well out of this are the, uh, the porn makers. They're probably the ones that are doing really well out of it. Well, the poor porn now? No, so you can't make porn. The only thing you can do is camming. So if you're a single cammer, there'd be lots of people that have apparently gone onto OnlyFans and sites like it to make content because they haven't got jobs or they've got loads of time on their hands. So there's been a new entry of people into it to do, but there's definitely been... I agree with you, Ash, a body of people that have decided, right, I'm going to use my body to actually make some money during this time. Okay, interesting, interesting. Um, but it doesn't obviously, um, it's not a substitute for the real thing, is it? <laughs> well, some, some people would argue that it's better because it's less messy. You can't get any STIs from it. You, you, you just click off if you don't want to look at that person anymore. You don't have to chuck them out of your bed or your house. There's a lot of benefits to it. Yeah, probably, probably so. But I think the message really is, again, it's this silence thing, isn't it? It's like lack of communication. Of course, people are going to have sex. Of course, people are going to want to have sex. They're going to want to connect. Uh, you know, we should be communicating to people about how they could do, they can do it with, you know, um, the, in the safest way possible, basically, is what we should be talking about, isn't it? You know what I mean? And, and that issue that Lewis mentions about um, a lot of younger people well, certainly everybody really under the age 60 thinks that they're less at risk than people over 60. You know, having been through COVID myself and suffered long COVID symptoms, um, I know that 
that really is a, a nonsense in a way because actually most people who end up with COVID will end up with something that affects them longer term. You know, if you've got asthma, if you're a young person with asthma, you're probably likely to get asthma worse after you've, after you've had COVID. So there's loads of different things. And also remember, there are a lot of people within the LGBT community. You know, we talk about um, HIV rates going down, but there's a lot of people who have got HIV and are living with HIV. And if they get COVID, this is going to cause major problems for them. So, um, you know, there are lots of, lots of people out there at risk. So, you know, it is something that I, pe I think people need to be, personally, I think people need to be responsible for. But I don't think that um, it requires society to be ridiculously moralistic. I think people need to be not moralistic, but realistic. And, and my problem is that, the, um, it's probably why I'm a centrist in a way, but you know, the left and the right, have, a, have an inbuilt moralism about, about them from different angles. And it, it means that a lot of the time they really don't like talking about sex at all in different sure. ways. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. We still, we've got a long, a, a long way to go. I think it would be really interesting to know how this whole thing has affected people being honest with um, sexual health people. You know, when you go in at the SCI tests and they're kind of like, okay, so how many partners have you had? whether people are lying now and whether that will affect the, the clearer picture of what's actually going on. Because I think we got to a point where it's like, you know, we know that the people at the sexual health clinic are not going to judge us. We can tell them exactly what's going on and, and get the proper tests and, and get, and they can get the right data and know what's actually going on in the world. If people are now lying, that, that could be a problem going forward. It, it could be definitely, definitely could be. And we don't know, as I say, we don't know how things are going to pan out with the, with coronavirus. I mean, we hope everyone's hoping for a, uh, for a vaccine it's still all up in the air as to how that's going to pan out and if things get worse again um, people might start looking for more sort of excuses and things you know people to blame and, and all the rest of it so you, you know you're absolutely right Lewis um, anyway let's move on because um, last time we were talking about moves afoot in Norway to clamp down on transphobia and biphobia and I, I wanted a little bit of clarity on this really um, so I spoke to Chris Johansson, who's from a group in Norway called Visible, which I think is quite a great, great name. Um, and, uh, and she told me all about the um, current legislation, the legislation that's going through um, on sexuality and uh, hate speech and clarified a few things. But also in our conversation, uh, she revealed to me that um, Norwegians have in recent times developed a new word for um, bisexuals. Uh, which doesn't involve the word sex. So have a listen to this. You're listening to Bisexual Brunch. Chris Johansson, board leader of Visible in Norway. Thank you very much indeed um, for joining us. Now, in a moment, we'll, we'll talk about these changes to the laws or potential changes to the laws um, in Norway to do with bisexuality. But before we do, let's get a little bit of background, both um, in terms of Visible, but also personally as well um one of the things we like to do on bisexual brunch is just hear people's you know not not in masses of detail but people's own sort of bisexual journeys if you know what i mean how they came to sort of know that they were bisexual and um obviously um you're 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 very visible about it now <laughs> um but but i'm sure it wasn't always the case just tell us how did you um yourself come to terms with being bisexual how when did you realize you were bisexual oh my god um <laughs> i uh, i think uh, part of me always knew 
but it was in my 20s um, that it really became something that I started to think about. Um, and then a bit after I came out, I started looking for community. Uh, and I didn't really find much in the queer community or I didn't feel like completely at home there. Um, so I eventually started uh, Visible, which is a, a social group. Uh, we don't do a lot of like uh, political activism. Uh, we mostly just hang out in cafes and uh, talk on Snapchat and nowadays a lot over social, social media. When you say, you know, you, you, you came to terms or you decided you were bisexual, was it a situation that you'd been over several years, you'd had relationships with men, relationships with women? It was, you know, what, 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 were you sort of in a, in a situation where you were constantly questioning what you were and where you were and where things were going? Or was it something that you, you'd bottled up and you didn't actually end up in relationships you know how how was it on practically for you um i guess it was a, a bit bottled up because i was in long-term relationship uh, over those years uh, when i started first started thinking about it um and so it was a bit like like internalized uh, by phobia obviously and like uh am i really sure and do I need to, because I'm in this straight looking relationship and yeah, but I, I ended up deciding that it was important anyway. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, we're going to talk in a moment about, about biphobia and, you know, how Norway's trying to sort of um, deal with that. Um, but you talk about internalized biphobia and, um, that is huge, isn't it? I mean, you know, all over the every everywhere, people are in relationships where they just cannot be completely open about who they are. And yeah. and as you said, when you said you were looking for when it came to you being, you know, coming to terms with it and looking for a community, um, there just isn't anything there. And I, you know, mm. we we get an impression of of Norway being fairly. Um, liberal-minded and open yeah. and all the rest of it. And if there was anywhere in the world, uh, it would be somewhere in the Scandinavian countries that would probably be, be be a place for bisexuals. We would think that's the that would be the impression we'd have probably in the UK. But yeah. but it but it but it but it is a problem everywhere, isn't it? Bisexuality is invisible. Yes, uh, very much. Um, uh, it's it's getting better uh, the last few years. Um, you can find some news articles that actually has the word bisexual that isn't uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, trans, and then the bisexual doesn't get mentioned anywhere else. That used to be the where you, if you googled by or bifil, which is what we say in uh, Norway, uh, which is a bit um, less sexualized term. I think they came up with it to kind of. Uh, so we say it with um, homo instead of saying homosexual we say uh, homophile which which is a bit more like your English gay I suppose more like offhand kind of relaxed way. And so for bisexual you'd say what would you say you'd say? Bifil. 
which is it's like uh, the feel. I think it's from. Um, it I think it means uh, love or. Yeah, yeah. Mm. That's interesting because actually, what tends to happen here in, in a lot, I think, in the English speaking world as a whole, is that um, the word sex gets basically taken completely out of context. So you say bisexual, and that, that's all anybody focuses on is, oh, these these bisexuals are all having you know orgies yeah. and all the rest of it, you know. Um, so so that that's that's really interesting. Maybe we should think about that. Something in the English speaking world should have yeah, something I, that's similar. I, yeah, I I actually uh, I think that was a very good idea originally uh to kind of take the the word sex out like that and focus on like like that's still there it's not like you aren't sexual anymore but uh, it takes out the 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 extreme focus on the sexual so like um fighting for the right to get married and stuff like that that's all about love and yeah I th- I th- I actually think that's I like that about us. Yeah, I think I think that's great. I never knew that. We're, 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 I'm, I'm hopefully we're we're teaching people things around the world, and I think we should adopt it. We should adopt Norway's uh, Norway's lead on that one. Um, do you find in, do you find in Norway as well that there's a degree of a certain degree of uh, of prejudice towards bisexual people from people within the you know, the, the, the wider sort of lesbian and gay community. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I've heard many stories from mostly because I know mostly bisexual women who have had the experience of walking up to, a, <laughs> like, um, talking to somebody in a gay bar and then being rejected once the person finds out they're bisexual. Uh, that's like... That's kind of a common story. Yeah, it, it, it's yeah. The, I think it's universal. It happens here as well and uh, <laughs> yeah. all over the world, sadly, sadly, sadly. So, mm. yeah, so you set up um, Visible, great title, mm. and you, you meet mm-hmm. and, you meet and get together and all the rest of it. And how, how big is Visible? We're not that big. Um, we have like 300 followers on Facebook, I think, now. Uh, but we have a very, um, like, strong, small community that's usually always show up um but uh, what's most uh i guess we also have a lot of usually end meetups we usually have like people who've been there before and then usually one new person and it's so often that the the news that the new person is somebody who's living like uh, almost um in hiding and and to see their first experience like being able to openly talk about being bisexual and like um just seeing their faces like you see that that's the first time they've been able to talk about this uh it's very very rewarding so um let's talk a little bit about the recent events in in norway then so mm-hmm. um th- there was a, a particular or has been a particular law against hate speech around anything to do with uh, homosexuality, lesbian and gay, uh, since 1981, I gather, in Norway. So it's been a, always been a big thing in, within your law. There's been a specific law against hate speech. Um, but I gather that the, the government in Norway have decided that they're going to bring in um, biphobia and transphobia within that sort of remit. Tell us a bit more. Yeah, so I just uh, uh, want to start off 
by um saying I correct you a little bit. Uh, so there's there's no wording uh, anywhere that says bisexual or uh, biphobia or uh, even trans. Though I'm going to come back to that. Um, uh, so the usually um, in the beginning this was the uh, anti-racism law, uh, commonly called. Uh, and then, like you said, in the 1981, it was it, it, they put in um, homophile orientering, uh, which is uh, loosely translated uh, uh, homosexual attraction. That was kind of put into the same um, hate speech and those kind of things. Um, and and then they also uh, they did this November. Uh, November the third, they um, uh, all the parties uh, voted uh, into uh, the law, so it's going to be uh, put into the law uh, next year, uh, January first, uh, and they're going to put in uh, in addition to all these other categories because there are a, a small list. Um, they're going to put in uh, gender expression and gender identity. And they're going to change because the wording was, like I said, homosexual identity. They're going to change the homosexual identity to just sexual identity. So trans transphobia and biphobia doesn't actually get a mention at all in any way, shape or form. That's interesting. That is just like how the new news like world interpret this to kind of get across to, yeah normal people <laughs> how do you how do you feel about that do you feel that th th it's a step in the right direction or do you think they actually should really be sort of express i mean you know let's face it we mentioned it earlier bisexuality tends to be invisible but in this instance it, it remains invisible doesn't it because it's not even been mentioned well yeah uh but it's neither does any of the other ones so i think it's a step in the right direction and this is um how should i say uh this is uh kind of like how the um, uh, discussion has been for the last years uh one of the biggest organizations for uh, queer people here in norway they recently or a few years back they changed their um, title uh, they used to be called uh, um, uh, Union of uh, Gay and Lesbians. Uh, and then they later they added a little like undertext with uh, bisexual and trans also kind of uh, thing. And then a few years ago, they changed the whole thing. So now they have a very like generalized um, uh, gender expression, uh, sexuality, like sexual minorities, those kind of very broad wordings. Yeah. But do you think, obviously you understand it, people mm. within generally, I would think within the LGBTQI world probably understand what this is, but do you yeah. think do you think the wider public understand that, you know, um, biphobia and transphobia is a thing as opposed to just being homophobia, as it were? Well, that depends a bit, I guess, on who you're talking about but yeah i guess there's a lot of people who doesn't know much but um we've had very much the last few years like many other places in the world i uh, suppose 
um, a discussion on trans and trans identity and um, all those kinds of word like uh, public uh, discussions. Uh, so that one has been very much in the um, in the eye of the media, if you will. Uh, so I guess there are a lot of people who are, have learned a lot like the few years because it has been so widely discussed. Um, but also, of course, that gives room to people to be hateful and uh, say lots of stupid things in media. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, um, it, it just yeah. it, it just seems. I don't know. I just. I mean, are there any? I mean, are there any calls from within the bisexual world in Norway for the for the government, the legislatures, to be a little bit more explicit about this? In the sense that, you know, we we were just talking about the yeah. how difficult it is for bisexual people to sort of reach out and to connect with people. Um, and if the you know if the government and and or the legislatures aren't even using the word bisexual, um, isn't that a bit of a problem? Yeah, I suppose um, we still have a lot to to do. There's definitely no, like, oh, now we can just sit down and everything will sort itself out. Yeah, no. Um, I think it's going in the right direction, but I, I don't think we're there yet. Um, so there is a discussion to be had. This is a, in the queer community uh, that I hang out with at least um there's a lot of like discussion on should we add more labels or should we uh, do like uh, many do uh, just open up the labels like make it uh, ha- and who gets left out so uh, i was actually a, little, a bit surprised that the media uh, interpreted it as uh, bisexuals getting added to this law because like you could from the wording, I'm not the, like a lawyer or <laughs> anything, uh, but from the wording, it would seem to me that you could like put in asexual uh, if somebody... Yeah, but th- this is obviously uh, a law that y- you have to be... <laughs> you, ha- you have to be a bit more than just like a nasty person to obviously get convicted of something it has to be a bit serious so that was chris johansson there from visible in norway and hopefully at some point in the future you know we might be able to go on a bisexual brunch tour when we're able to travel and uh, it'd be nice to go and spend some time in uh, in norway it's a country i've always wanted to visit so <laughs> i don't know about you have either of you been to norway before i haven't no i haven't been to any of the scandi countries so well, yeah we definitely look like we can have a brunch trip there i think oh, so let's I do think it so. <laughs> <laughs> every time i have an interview with anybody in Scandinavian countries, there's always something surprising comes out. I think, why well, haven't I heard about that? And it's ridiculous, really, because Norway is literally just over the water. You know, we hear everything in America. We hear nothing about what's happening just around the corner. Anyway, as you heard there in that conversation, two things. One, the clarity on this legislation. Basically, it's going to cover the whole issue of hate speech around sexuality generally. Is that a problem? Do you think that's a problem that, when, that they're not mentioning the words bisexual and, and, and trans within the actual legislation, Nikki? Yeah, definitely a problem. And I don't know why they're not doing it. That sounds really, really strange to me. But then, I mean, okay, so there would be a problem for me if they were definitely doing it in Britain because I don't think there's enough tolerance or understanding. Anyway, maybe it's because they think in Norway there's certain things that are presumed about equality and sexual orientation that we aren't kind of perceiving, if that makes sense. 
Although, although she was seemingly suggesting that, you know, it's still a real struggle for bisexual people in Norway to get heard. So, you know, I mean, she, she welcomed it. She still said she welcomed it and she thought it was a good thing, but um, it's in the right direction. But again, it's that whole thing of, and it's disappointing, isn't it? It's the whole thing of, of um, bi-erasia, isn't it, Lewis? Yeah, it's a weird one. Um, I do kind of feel a little bit like, um, just practically how, if you don't have that word in there, how could you ever prosecute someone for something that's not been specified? That seems odd to me. Um, well, I suppose the interesting thing that came out of it, you and I were, uh, in fact, all three of us, but you and I in particular, were moaning about last time about the fact that uh, we, we did, really didn't want to be in a situation whereby friends of, I, of ours had said, oh, bisexuality, all that, you're just being greedy, or uh, bisexuality doesn't exist, and whatever. We thought, we don't want them banged up in prison, even though we, we don't agree with them. But basically, the Norwegians aren't going to be that draconian. So, uh, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, no, I agree. I think it does need to have some, you know, you do need to mention these things because people won't understand that, I mean, I think the reason it's been it's been done in a way, actually, and this probably it's probably going to get more traction than than the bisexual thing, is the issue of trans, because it has become a a, a red hot issue, hasn't it, uh, Nikki? Oh gosh, yes, it has become a red hot issue. I mean, everybody in Europe and America is talking about issues of you know self identification and whether that should be legally allowed. Like every country is going through a debate on that topic, and yeah. they're reaching their own conclusions about it. So until I think, you know, we're at a very important period in history for trans people in terms of determining and, and gathering their rights. And until it's kind of more uniformly one way rather than the other in a block of countries, that struggle is going to continue and it needs to. I, I just don't understand the level of threat they feel. I can't relate to it at all. I don't understand why somebody else's gender selection preference matters to you. I just don't get it. And even that, I say that as a feminist, I know there's a big argument within the feminist community that basically trans rights are pushing back on women's rights because of the issue around uh, trans prisoners or trans people in refuges. But I just can't understand it. It doesn't, it doesn't worry me. I don't worry about a tiny percentage of a tiny percentage of a community of people attacking me and my freedoms and my liberties and my safety. I just don't. And maybe that's because I'm really lucky and I don't feel in danger all the time anyway or something. But Not to get a load of trans people are by. Absolutely, they are, lots of them. A lot of this goes back to the issue, though, for a lot of the feminists, goes back to the issue of patriarchy, doesn't it? Because they, yeah. they think that, it, that basically trans people who become trans women are, in fact, still men, really. That's what they're thinking, aren't they? Yeah, they, they think that the way you've lived at some point in your life can never be overtaken by another way of living. So if your primary experience was as a male, then that will kind of carry you through your decision making. And I just find that hugely patronising because there are lots of brilliant men in this world. You two, obviously my friends and my husband and a bunch of other people who don't think that women are lesser, who don't move through the world trying to enact violence against women. So why would it be any different if you start out being a man. I just don't understand it, Ash. I can't, I can't get to it. Do trans men get the same kind of... No, no they, they do. don't. I, I also think trans men have a huge problem with visibility because they are really just not... Talk when we're talking about trans issues and trans rights and problems with the trans community, we're really talking about trans women. We don't talk about trans men. Are you going to say something, Lewis? No, I was going to agree we do. I do. There's not enough discussion about trans men. I don't find it's always trans women. I don't know whether that's because... Here's the thing, and I do really feel so bad for trans people that, that, that really we couldn't have dealt with this before because doing it now in this time where 
the most extreme comment is always taken out of context and thrown on the front pages. It's just so hard. And it's like, you know, getting these extremists to always fight each other and debate on Good Morning Britain as though they have a point. It's just, it just is so dehumanizing, I think, to, to what we're trying to do here. So I, I, I just, I, I feel for, for trans campaigners in particular, it's, it's got to be so hard to be doing this in a, in a world of social media and a million channels. Exactly. And what, and, and, as, and what you say, you know, yeah, there are a lot of uh, bisexual people uh, within the trans community and we, we, we should do something on, on, on Bisexual Brunch to embrace our trans uh, friends uh, at some point um, in, in future shows. Um, but uh, finally, let's go back to the uh, issue that we raised right at the very beginning and we heard, we revealed there in that interview uh, how Norwegians have decided that uh, there's another word for bisexual, for describing bisexuality because they, I think, have got a bit fed up with the word sex, confusing people. And uh, you heard it there, and it's it's by feel, by feel. How, how do you how do you feel about by feel? <laughs> well, I'm I'm interested to know the etymology of that. Is it is it um, by feel in the sense of feeling, touching, sensing, or is it feeling in the sense of like philia from the Greek, as in love? I didn't really go in deeply into that, but I think <laughs> as you as you heard, I suppose because at the end of the day, the word gay isn't you know it doesn't automatically think make you think sex, does it? Do you know what I mean? That's the thing. Whereas, you know, because we, we use bisexual and have sex in the middle, everyone thinks that it's to do with the act. I mean, it's ridiculous, really. People should be able to think beyond that. But that's how apparently it's perceived, isn't it? Well, I think what's important is the term gay, you know, is a term that was that meant something else. Then it meant something else. Then it was used as a term of slander. And then the gay community reappropriated it. They basically took it back and they were like, right, we're using this term to describe ourselves. As in the bi community, have we had a similar term? I mean, if I think about what other terms there are for being bi, bi Americans use switch hitter, which isn't particularly flattering. You know, it's like a baseball term, isn't it? And then there's also there's that phrase licking both sides of the stamp. Again, I don't know. You can get that down into one word. So I can't, I haven't, I don't think as a community we've had a particularly good slanderous word used against us that we can nick for our own use. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> what do you think to Byfields? Uh, um, I'm not feeling Byfields, to be honest. And I'm not, um, here's the thing, I'm not 100% against changing the label. I've been against quite strongly, like, um, the fragmentation of the label because I, I feel like it's quite hard to then group us all together and be like, no, people that are dealing with attractions to more than one gender are more likely to deal with this and, and, and get a consensus. I wouldn't be completely against us changing our label if it meant the exact same thing, but it was just a, a word that had a better cut through. And there has been quite a lot written in, in the past by bisexual people about, because it's got the word sex in it, it it's just putting people off in a, in a way that the word gay and lesbian doesn't. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm open to suggestions, but it's got to be a really good word. Um, and by feels, I don't know, I'm not feeling it, to be honest. And I just think a lot of people wouldn't take it seriously. And you've got to think you need a word that like the haters are gonna, you're gonna be able to use towards the haters. And I'd be like, oh, feels, feelings, oh. Yeah. Um, you know I, what I mean? I, and it's just like, oh, like I, I'm not, I'm not willing to, us to step back and have to take more time to get by feels taken seriously when really we should be further further along it seems like a bit of a setback for a word that i don't really think will work i think the by umbrella has worked quite well because that kind of incorporates like it's it's not exactly the same for every single person it's a spectrum and there's different experiences and there are different ways of defining under the by umbrella 
the buy umbrella is not really good anyway to go out and take to the haters, but I think buy has been like the, the shortened buy bit. Yeah. But we, you know, I'm, I'm open. I just, I, think, I just don't feel feels is right. I think the word buy, I think you've got to have buy somewhere. I, I just think it, you know, it would really irritate me if we suddenly lost um, the essence of what was, you know, what we're supposed to be about, really. And, and it worries me, actually, that in a way, um, we've been in that situation whereby for quite a while now, people have been using lots of different terms uh, uh, to, which have which have sort of dis, not discredited but i don't know sort of i i think have got in the way of the of the overall bisexual sort of um rights cause in a way so you've got all these different terms now that are used and and when i go out there and try and advocate doing you know a program or or something on tv or radio around bisexuality you always get people coming back to you saying things like, well, um, we don't think it's a thing really because actually uh, people are just fluid and, and they're, not really, they're don't, not really into bisexuality. It's, it's fluidity now kind of thing. It's as though, it's as though bisexual, bisexual is, a, is a dirty word. And I not really, I don't know about you, Nikki, but actually I'm not really prepared to accept that. I think actually we should fight for the word bisexual because at the end of the day it's only down to people's um own sort of ignorance really and prejudice that they have a problem with the word sex we should we need to get over that word sex for god's sake don't we really yeah i think we do and i think the biggest issue is that we need a word that evolves organically if it doesn't evolve organically you can't impose it down it never never works like every every example of language when you try and instruct people how to speak and what terms to use never works so that's the number one problem for me yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Well, anyway, um, obviously it's working in Norway. Um, they they must, be, must, must be much more sophisticated than us. They can cope with it. <laughs> we, we've, we've got to go back to basics here. <laughs> yeah, we haven't got the basics right, I think, is the problem. Yeah, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. Anyway, if anybody's got any thoughts on uh, what we should, uh, you know, using, using by, I think, but maybe something additional. Anyone got any thoughts, please um, uh, get, get in, in, in touch with us. Okay, well, that's Bisexual Brunch for this week. If you've got any comments, thoughts, musings, do get in touch with us at, at Bisexual Brunch on Twitter. And thank you for listening, and we'll see you later. Bye for now. Right, I'm off to write a very strongly worded letter to Public Health England. On a Sunday. On a Sunday. There's dedication for you. <laughs> this program is an MIM production. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.